we're definitely in in that atmosphere where there is a game plan, uh, and there. Uh, certainly, is this cautious optimism again? But the level of mistrust is extremely high on all sides. What we know about the upcoming meeting between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong Un is that it'll be an historic occasion. But while high-level meetings like this are traditionally reserved for after the details of an agreement have been hammered out, the circumstances that led to this summit have been anything but traditional. Now, while we may not be able to predict the outcome of the talks, we can at least prepare ourselves for whatever the outcome might be by understanding the political realities driving each major player. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and in this second installment of our ongoing series on the negotiations in Korea, we're joined by HKS lecturer John Park, who directs the Korea Working Group out of the Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Dr. Park, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Great to be here. So, uh, first of all, you just returned from uh, Seoul just uh, a few days ago. What is the mood there? What, how are people feeling about the, these ongoing uh, negotiations or discussions? Compared to where we were just a few months ago, I think there's a great sense of relief on the Korean Peninsula. In Seoul, the idea that there was now a game plan to move away from the heightened tensions of last year and get on track for processes leading to a permanent peace mechanism, to denuclearization, and also an improvement in inter-Korean relations were all greeted with uh, a lot of enthusiasm. I think the poll numbers are most convincing in terms of the shift. Uh, prior to the summit, the overall South Korean mood was still skeptical. The hope that there would be a breakthrough, but still a healthy dose of skepticism. Mm -hmm. The latest poll numbers show that almost a direct shift in terms of that skepticism to a sense that there might be a plan here, that this could be a way out of the cycle that we saw last year of elevated tensions. So overall, I would say the mood in Seoul in particular is one where we're seeing the unveiling of the different pieces with uh, the number of high-level summits, but also the outlines of a game plan that could put us on a path that is very different from what we saw recently. There are a lot of risks involved, but I think we're going to see uh, South Korea's executive mm -hmm. uh, put out uh, more details in terms of how they're going to try to hedge and mitigate some of these risks. Uh, so. Obviously, the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in was historic in that there was a crossing of the 38th parallel and there was a lot of symbolism. Uh, shortly thereafter, there was an announcement of uh, shared intentions. Um, that is not so historic in that those kinds of uh, you know announcements have been made in the past. Do you get the sense that people feel like that was still a positive step, even if it was um, kind of they'd seen that before? There are a lot of details that have to be worked out. And in terms of some of the language and the goals laid out, aspirational goals, uh, they mirror very closely the language and terminology that we've seen in previous inter-Korean summit agreements and declarations. What I think is different now is that there is a greater emphasis on these inter-Korean infrastructure development projects, essentially railways and roads, mm. also things that have been mentioned in previous accords. But the details uh, related to this part of it, we're seeing more come at it in the South Korean press. And this is the area that feels different. Uh, there is much more by way of preparation and consultation to make these projects take off in a way uh, that they'll happen quickly and on a scale that we really haven't seen before. Uh, so there, there is much that, that we uh, have to wait and see, 
But in terms of the movement so far, I think this is an area that tends to be uh, de-emphasized when it comes to analyses about particularly this summit. I often hear people uh, talk about North Korea as being very disconnected. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of propaganda um, and uh, not so much access to the outside world. Uh, but uh, I'm not so sure if that's an accurate portrayal of uh, you know the average North Korean's understanding of their position relative to say their you know so- southern cousins. I'm curious for your perspective on this uh, because when we're talking about you know building roads between them, you, you hear people say, well, once the North Korean people see how much poorer they are, uh, then they'll surely overthrow the Kim regime. Do you think that's, that's true? The way that the developments on the Korean Peninsula have been broadcast internally are very much within the formula of Pyongjin. This is the Kim regime's, Kim Jong-un's strategy, the game plan. The first part of it is building nuclear weapons for self-defense, minimal nuclear deterrent. The second is prosperity, economic development leading to uh, improvement of the overall economy. And so from that perspective, uh, from a domestic audience, you look at that formulation of Pyongjin, and through the statements from the regime and through the state media, the uh, message is quite clear. Uh, North Korea has become a nuclear weapon state, not in terms of another member of the nuclear weapons club, but the P6, essentially the, the sixth within the group of uh, great powers that have this type of uh, weaponry, the nuclear weapons that can uh, go across continents. So from that perspective, the idea of economic development projects now coming online in co- coordination and cooperation with South Korea, I think uh, is slotted under that second heading of economic development leading to prosperity. So from that angle, when you look at also the zones in which they'll be doing the railways and the roads, uh, predominantly they're going to be on the coast, on the west and east coast. Mm-hmm. So you look at the connection of the South Korean economy, which is frankly an island economy because it has been cut off mm. from the landmass of Asia uh, with the security uh, and the division of the uh, Korean Peninsula, essentially connected. And with that, I think the activity that goes through and eventually spreads to other parts of North Korea becomes a part of the Pyongjin formulation as it's mentioned internally. Mm-hmm. So on that uh, front, it's going to be phased and controlled from the North Korean side, but certainly with this type of cooperation and partnership on the South Korean side. Obviously, this is something that the Kim regime would like to do, uh, but at the same time, it does seem to represent a threat to the, you know, the very nature of, of their regime. When people are a little bit better off, they're more likely to ask questions about their political system. Uh, is that part of the calculation? How, how is North Korea thinking about that? This isn't going to be the opening of the gates totally. This is uh, the type of controlled cooperation uh, in terms of what comes through that I think will enable the North Korean regime to frame these type of developments as achievements under the Pyongjin game plan. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, the concerns from a North Korean regime angle that this is a Trojan horse of some kind, uh, this is, I think, uh, something that's more structured and and, uh, framed in terms of the the broader Pyongjin and progress along the lines of the Pyongjin game plan. So is this all an indication that uh, the reason we're seeing these negotiations, this uh, nascent detente uh, emerge, is it because of the sanctions that have been levied by, you know, the United States and especially China? That's definitely a dominant interpretation right now. And we hear a lot of that coming out of Washington as well. And the 
view on sanctions is something that uh, tends to be oversimplified in many respects. Uh, there is a role, there is an impact, and these sanctions under the Trump administration uh, go much uh, further than other sanctions in previous administrations. However, if you look at where the North Korean regime is in terms of its development, and also, most importantly, its relationship with China, uh, if you think of it, North Korea really doesn't function like a country. It's a 1%, 99% phenomenon. And the 1% elites, a lot of them are embedded in the Chinese marketplace, mm -hmm. doing this type of business and procurement on behalf of the North Korean regime. So this offers something of a coping mechanism for the regime. And I think even during some of the more stringent applications and implementation of these new types of sanctions, there still was this pressure relief valve function. For the elite, at least. For the elite, at least, exactly. Mm -hmm. And for the 99%, there's more access to low-level trading activities, setbacks that uh, have connections uh, to the sanctions and the increasing sanctions. But overall, the type of situation, I think, uh, that has a, a type of resiliency that can last longer. It's not to say indefinitely uh, this won't have a, a debilitating impact. It's just that the coping mechanism from smuggling for uh, the export of North Korean coal uh, in uh, limited but still in uh, substantial uh, quantities and also this idea of smuggling in oil gives a, a sense uh, of how the uh, smuggling networks do provide this uh, coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. On the other front, though, if you look at the uh, sanctions implementation as well, this is a function of all the countries involved. And when you look at it from the dynamics between North Korea and China, the onslaught of diplomacy and these diplomatic off-ramps and summits, I think, has created uh, some opportunities for uh, a little bit of easing up on sanctions. Not the lifting of sanctions, but easing up on some of the implementation of sanctions in some areas of China. So these are areas where I think we have to look a little elsewhere in terms of where the uh, influence and, and the factor that led to these type of summits came from. And when you pursue that line of analysis, you look very squarely at Seoul and the South Korean approach uh, to trying to move away from the heightened levels of tensions last year and the opportunities to use whatever diplomatic means possible to get the different countries around the table, first to the bilateral, uh, and then eventually what would be uh, larger uh, types of implementation uh, venues as well. That's a game plan, at least. For the time being, the diplomatic off-ramp uh, has been working because there has been greater focus on these concrete actions. Uh, it is enormously difficult task when it comes to denuclearization. There clearly are stated differences in terms of understandings of what denuclearization means. But when you look at it through what looks like essentially a blueprint uh, from the Panmunjom Declaration, you see three areas. One is the focus on denuclearization, uh, the inter-Korean uh, relationship and improvement of that relationship. And the third, the idea of building out a permanent peace mechanism. Yeah. So with that as, as the blueprint, I, I think you see uh, this effort. There is no certainty of outcome, but the investment of a tremendous amount of political capital and the uh, effort to link it to some of these inter-Korean development projects on the transportation infrastructure side, where the two features that I think will be important to monitor going forward is how quickly we're going to see some of the implementation of uh, these nascent uh, processes. Uh, and the other piece of it is the high-level engagement uh, among the uh, three core countries. Uh, mm. This is basically the United States, South Korea, North Korea. And along those lines, uh, Kim Jong-un recently uh, made a trip to China to meet with Xi Jinping. Uh, is China feeling left out of all of this? One thing that we did notice is that even at the height of tensions last year, there was no substantial change in terms of 
the engagement by the Communist Party of China with respect to their North Korean counterparts and the Workers' Party. So if you look at the whole phenomenon of what we call North Korea Incorporated, the elite state trading companies affiliated to the top branches of the regime, uh, their officials, their procurement officers embedded in the Chinese marketplace, they continue to operate as they did before. And from that perspective, I think it gives you a sense of a type of party-to-party -party relationship between the Chinese and North Koreans that is something of the institutional level. And with that, uh, the meeting that took place between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un very recently took everyone by surprise. But from that perspective of party-to-party -party institution building, I think it gives you a sense that uh, it is ongoing. And going forward, as North Korea makes these steps towards denuclearization, uh, that there will be an acceleration of the party-to-party -party connection in that sense as well, and perhaps uh, even more easing up of sanctions. Uh, one thing that uh, came out just in, in the last few days uh, was there was some confusion about South Korea's uh, thoughts regarding the U.S. troop presence. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, North Korea says that it needs nuclear weapons to defend itself, and part of that is because there are 30-some-odd thousand American troops on its border. Um, but now uh, – is that up for up for grabs in these negotiations? And does South Korea want that? There has been a lot of discussion about the role of U.S. troops in South Korea. If we go to the full fruition of this process where we see a denuclearized and, and a verified denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, we see a peace treaty, and we also see this type of uh, integral economic development uh, projects uh, blooming in the north as well. There are a lot of ifs, and I think with that, uh, having this as a point of discussion at, at this early stage is one more of exploring the possibilities, as it were. Uh, to have it formally on the table, uh, I think uh, it's a still early, but it really, I think, is dependent upon what kind of progress we have. And it's not the marginal progress, but this idea of very advanced stages if the process does move to those uh, advanced stages. Are there other reasons why I can imagine having that number of troops is an economic boon to some areas in South Korea? Are there political reasons why uh, the Seoul may be slow to move on, on, on you know, removing their presence? There are economic benefits to local mm. areas, but what we're seeing in South Korea is an advanced economy uh, and an economy that is more focused on trade. Uh, that's a clear part of the dynamics of uh, the overall economic composition. However, within the U.S. military presence in South Korea, there is something of a centralization of their locations to a facility called uh, Camp Humphreys. That's in Pyeongtaek. Uh, south, just south of uh, Seoul. So we're moving away from all these U.S. military camps spread across South Korea to this central location in Camp Humphreys. So from that perspective, there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of benefit to the local economy there. But the main reason, I think, is uh, related to what's called burden-sharing negotiations. Uh, it's always a contentious uh, exercise. In this particular cycle, the U.S. side is expecting more of the uh, South Korean contribution. Mm -hmm. South Korean view is that they've already been quite generous in terms of their contribution to uh, the uh, covering of expenses for housing and, and hosting uh, U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula in, in South Korea. However, the main determinant, though, uh, isn't really on the economic side. I think it's broader the, the political and the security landscape. Uh, under this uh, current South Korean government, more on the left-leaning side, there is an effort to accelerate what's called OPCON 
uh, control. There's wartime Afghan control. In the event of war, operational control would come under the South Koreans. Uh, and as a part of this process, you would have more and more uh, capabilities and uh, command uh, under the South Korean side rather than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Progressive government would like to see acceleration of this process. And so with this, I think you, you will see on this separate timeline more of the military uh, modernization on the South Korean side. Uh, and this idea of relying less and less on the South, on the U.S. Uh, part of the the alliance here, so that that is something that is happening uh, in a simultaneous fashion. But uh, with respect to the broader configuration, again, this is going to be uh, primarily dependent on how far we move on these processes related to denuclearization and the permanent peace mechanism. Mm-hmm. Moon Jae-in was elected as president last year. He is obviously a progressive, a marked difference from uh, his predecessors. Uh, and he has expended a fair amount of time and capital to uh, bring North Korea to the table to find some kind of uh, diplomatic uh, solution. At the same time, the U.S. president has been, well, aggressive, um, primarily on Twitter, and uh, they seem to be coming at this from different directions. Are they on the same page as, you know, they enter these negotiations? There has been a great deal of coordination at the highest levels. Uh, So we're looking at President Trump and President Moon uh, in regular contact, most recently after the Pyongyang most recently, after the Panmunjom Declaration and the Inter-Korean Summit, you had President Moon debriefing President Trump right after that. And President Moon will be going to Washington for consultations with President Trump as you, we see the preparations for the U.S.-North Korea Summit coming mm-hmm. up as well. So from that perspective... <clears throat> So from that perspective, we see this close consultation. With respect to the priorities, uh, there are some differences... But I think the uh, game plan that we see incorporates uh, essentially what the U.S. wants to get out of this and what South Korea wants to get out of these type of deals and arrangements with North Korea. Uh, In terms of the pace of development and how things move along, that's an area where I think uh, Washington and Seoul will have to increase the coordination, look at the details in in a closer fashion. But overall, I think what what is remarkable is the high-level coordination uh, that began uh, between South Korea and the United States, and then South Korea and North Korea. And then we also saw that type of interaction happen at very high levels between the United States and North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, over Easter weekend, we uh, heard the revelation that then-CIA Director Pompeo was in Pyongyang meeting with Kim Jong-un directly. So we're seeing a, a lot of these types of interactions where uh, in order to move forward, certain understandings in place uh, being an important prerequisite. And the fact that we are moving forward, it gives a sense that there is happen- there's a lot that's been happening under the surface that we haven't uh, been able to piece together directly now, but we're getting to see uh, as these steps are uh, being unveiled very quickly. So as we enter these negotiations, there are all sorts of risks, a, a tremendous amount of distrust. Uh, what do you see as some of the bigger barriers to finding a deal? So as you mentioned, the distrust is extremely high. Uh, there is a lot of legacy memory of previous accords that never got to fruition. So already in those previous cycles, uh, some cautious optimism uh, effort to give those processes a chance, and then ultimately uh, the fizzle, and that that leading to the type of even elevated distrust. So we're we're definitely in in that atmosphere where there is a game plan, uh, and there 
uh, certainly is this cautious optimism again, but the level of mistrust is extremely high on all sides. So that clearly remains as a, as a big hurdle. The second hurdle, though, is that in this complex implementation that we're about to enter in after this phase of high-level symmetry and laying out the uh, game plan, if there are planned or unplanned pauses of some kind, there are many in the wings who will view that as uh, more than sufficient to pull the plug on this effort. So while the goals are lofty, uh, we do see a credible game plan, at least, embedded with a lot of risk as well. Uh, but this is something that is going to require quite a bit of work in terms of the key countries involved, but particularly South Korea's. And I think this is South Korea's role and the work of South Korea, where there is uh, a much more focused approach to realizing some of these uh, key goals uh, in the sense that they can manage the risk. Time will only tell if that really comes to full fruition, but we're seeing a level of planning and implementation uh, and the pace of implementation overall that's uh, being envisioned as well that we really haven't seen in previous cycles. What do you personally expect to see over the next few months? With respect to the way that these different agreements are coming out, uh, with uh, the focus on the implementation and more of the details coming up, uh, my expectation is that we're going to see a lot of these high-level, top-down type of approaches to getting these uh, statements and declarations out. We're going to see more emphasis on what these processes entail. The core processes mentioned denuclearization process. Uh, the, they're, they're framed as mechanisms. So denuclearization mechanism, permanent peace mechanism, and this idea of essentially ways to improve the inter-Korean relationship. Uh, those are the areas that I expect to see more details. Uh, the idea that we're also going to see some tangible signs along the way is another uh, area that uh, I expect to see uh, in, in greater fashion. One, and the one that's coming up very qu uh, quickly, is dismantlement of the nuclear test site at Pongiri. Mm. Uh, this is one that is going to be done with international observers, with uh, journalists, and uh, also, as it looks uh, right now, some uh, UN inspectors as well. Also, imminently, we're uh, expecting the release of the three U.S. detainees in North Korea as well. So these type of movements happening very quickly, particularly before the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, gives you a sense of uh, the differences as, as we compare it to other cycles of trying to engage North Korea. Uh, and so overall, you know, this is a type of process that is uh, taking many by surprise. One thing, though, I would put out as a caveat is that it's important to see it through the context of this broader game plan and these three critical mechanisms as opposed to single events and single summits and then trying to read the tea leaves. Uh, there's a lot at play right now. And so trying to uh, keep track of how these different pieces are uh, moving forward is a big part of the, the research and analysis going forward. Well, HKS lecturer John Park, director of the Korea Working Group, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matt. PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Matt Cadwallader. That's Matt Cad on Twitter. Jacob Beiser provides technical and editorial support. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts via email to policycast at hks.harvard.edu. See you next week.